The ones that I see that become successful firsthand start out with very little and then grow their business as well. They're the ones that are not afraid to make those mistakes. That's the voice of Matt Morgan, owner of M2 Lumber, and I'm excited to talk with him right after a quick word from our sponsor. Hey everyone, what do you know about Shaper Tools? Specifically, the Shaper Origin. As a listener to this show, you can try a Shaper Origin risk-free for 30 days in your own shop. That's right, in your own shop. Just by visiting shapertools.com forward slash furniture brand to learn more. The handheld CNC router that has brought digital precision and efficiency of workflow to so many people is yours to try risk-free. Use it to tackle your joinery, your cabinetry, your hardware installations, and more with speed, precision, and the reliability your business needs. If you want to learn more or to give it a risk-free 30-day try, just visit shapertools.com forward slash furniture brand or check the link in the show notes. And now on with the episode. Hello and welcome to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson, the show that talks about the business behind the furniture business. On this episode, I sit down with Matt Morgan, owner of the upstate South Carolina furniture company, M2 Lumber. For some companies, there comes a point that it is no longer a question about, do we have the skills to build it? It's a question of, can we manage our time properly enough to build it? As you will hear, Matt owns about six different full-time companies, and at the same time, still continues to work at his day job. So time management is at the top of his list. But over the years, he has also learned a lot about the business and the creative side of the furniture world. Knowledge that he's always happy to share. Follow along as we talk about converting web traffic to clients, becoming a better boss, optimizing your time, and much more. I'm so happy Matt could sit down and talk. So let's just jump right in and hear about his story in his own words. My father was a very talented woodworker as a hobby, not as a profession. He's a cardiovascular perfusionist in the medical field, which is very different. But he was just a very talented woodworker and he enjoyed doing it. He built things from, you know, traditional furniture, secretary desk, corner cabinets. Um, he built grandfather clocks all the way to complete other end of the spectrum, making Alaskan kayaks and even made a hand carved uh, Stradivarius style violin once for my sister. So very, very broad spectrum, very talented woodworker. And that's what I grew up around. I do have memories as a child spending some time in the shop. I almost cut my thumb off with a bandsaw when I was 12 years old, for example. So um, in that aspect, I guess I could say I've been doing woodworking for 20 years. But when I, I didn't do it a whole lot in my teenage years, as most teenagers, I was doing other things that were not as healthy or advantageous for my future or my career. Uh, and then I went to uh, college and uh, got an education in engineering and then uh, got my first real job after school. And that's when I sort of got back into looking for healthy, mature hobbies to do. And I naturally fell back to woodworking because I, I had already some experience with that. And um, yeah, things started off very much a hobby, just making furniture for myself or my wife or my kids for the house that led to then, you know, my wife bragging about it and uh, building furniture for neighbors and friends. And then a few commission pieces here or there. And then it really took off in, I'd say, 2015 when we moved, um, I say, quote unquote, out to the country because um, we live in a much more rural area. We have four acres of land. And that's when I had the crazy idea to start a lumber business. And so we started um, harvesting, salvaging logs or trees that would go down, milling up our own lumber, which quickly led to having too much wood because I originally intended to just have my own lumber for woodworking. That got out of hand very, very quickly. Then we started to acquire other equipment to allow us to process it more efficiently, more effectively, kiln drying, um, loader equipments. We have a vacuum kiln now. And the money from that side of the business really helped to grow uh, and accelerate our furniture side of the business because in six years we have 
developed a well over six figure annual business. We have a 3,200 square foot shop. We have all the toys anyone could ever want. Uh, and it's just been really fun. And, and like I said, the last couple of years, the furniture side has really taken off. We do about two to three commission pieces a month. And we're trying to scale up from there to do a few more. It's mostly tables and bar tops. It's nothing extremely, I don't want to insult anyone, but I don't really consider that very difficult because they're just table tabletops with some bases on it. Uh, we don't get into a whole lot of custom cabinetry or hardwood dressers and, and, and stuff like that. Although I would like to one day, but we, we haven't really developed much into that yet. And that's where we are today. We're, we're about three or four people working part-time. I'm full-time and um, I still have a day job though. And uh, we're just trying to knock stuff out as quickly as we can by still producing high quality. <laughs> you talked about a lot of different things that you're doing, but really you just talked about the tip of the iceberg of what you do. You have a slab company, you have a furniture company, you do custom furniture as well. You mm -hmm. sell small items, you do custom CNC work for people, you do custom slab drying for people. And I'm sure there's other things you do in there as well. So you have basically five to six companies that you're running under the same umbrella of this woodworking business. And running one part of a business is hard enough, but running all of these different parts sounds almost impossible to do well. But obviously you are doing it well because you have a six plus figure business and you have people working for you and you've done this for a while. So you are successful. I want to start off with a question that I feel a lot of people are thinking, how do you have time for all this? And how do you schedule your time to be able to do all of these things efficiently? Yeah, that's uh, first of all, thank you for all the compliments you snuck in there. I really appreciate that. Uh, it's very flattering. But yes, time is is absolutely the most precious resource that I have and is the most difficult thing to manage because you can you can find ways to make more money to get more people but time is, is you have so much there's 24 hours in a day there is about i have found my max limit is about 100 hours a week that i can work past that i turn into a zombie and it's just terrible so um managing my time has been the most difficult thing now i will say that the business has grown substantially in the last six years i was not working near as much six years ago when we first started this. And as we have grown, imagine step-by-step, step, I have been very fortunate to be able to also step down and away from my day job. So I work as an engineer for a large automotive company, and I have been able to go from working full-time, which is pretty typical for most engineers, to working um, part-time, four days a week. And now, actually, for the last year, I've been working only three days a week. So that has been a huge benefit. Uh, not too many people are even able to do that. And I wasn't even sure my company would let me do that, but they did. And so being able to gain more time as I needed it, so to speak, has been a huge win for, for me. Um, and then, of course, I have, to, I have to admit that I have an amazingly supportive family. I have two children, a 13-year-old and a six-year-old daughter, and uh, my wife, who works full-time as well as a teacher. She has been an amazingly supportive person for me to do this. She understands that it is a huge investment um, because there are many nights that I do not eat dinner with my family. Uh, there are many vacations that I don't go on to do. Uh, and, and so there are sacrifices that we have made in order to allow me to grow it at the rate that it has been growing. And, and that's not the plan to do that forever, I hope. But just as when you start a business, you have to invest money you also have to invest time. And we, we discussed and understood that and we have done that. And so I have been working essentially six days a week, minimum, uh, sometimes seven for the last four plus years of my life to build this to the point to where it is. I almost forgot when I was listing all the things that you do that not only do you have five to six of your own businesses, you're also working at another business. So that's just an 
an insane amount of time being put in. And I hear you with a supportive family working very hard, not taking vacations late nights. I hear that. But those are sort of general ideas. Let's get into the actual facts of what's happening. And how are you scheduling out your time? Is it delegating to the employees that you have? Is it scheduling out every single piece and project beforehand? What is the actual mechanisms that make your scheduling able to function with all these different things? Sure. Uh, Yeah, I will say that. So in all the different things that we have going on, right, the five or if you consider five to six different businesses, in the beginning, the majority of our business was just basically selling wood. That's what we, that's what we started out to be known as. We did some custom builds, but it was 80% was selling wood. That's changed a little bit now. It's probably more about 50% selling wood, 50% custom furniture, but that's how we started. Benefit to that is that it's a very long process. And so selling wood is not necessarily something that has to be scheduled as, as, as much as like building a table for someone. Because the way it works is we, we decide what we're going to mill up, what we need to cut to have in stock, and we just we go cut it. We cut it whenever we can, and we, we, we then start that process to have it available. When it comes to actually selling it, it doesn't take a whole lot of my time. Someone asks if I have something. I say yes. They show up, they buy it, and they leave. So the, the more stressful part is the, is the custom services part, milling wood for people, CNC wood, uh, services, and the custom furniture side. And... Yes, as we got more into that side, uh, one of the first things that I did was hire part-time help. That has greatly uh, improved our ability to manage our time, to process things more efficiently, to take on more work, to just grow the business. We had to bring on help. And that was scary at first. I remember when I was thinking about doing it, just terrified of the idea of paying someone else because keep in mind i'm sure most people feel this as well when you start a small business i wasn't paying myself at all at this point in time i didn't start paying myself until about a year or two ago and i i was able to do that because i still had the day job so i was paying other people way before i started paying myself um, just to try to help keep money in the business and to grow it Um, so that was scary but i learned very quickly that once we got past the the training aspect of it and, you know, which didn't take too long, maybe a week or two. I'm talking basic things. Like I have a, a postgraduate high school kid now who works for me. He's been with me for a couple of years and he, you know, he can sand wood. He can do some basic operations with a track saw and stuff like that and prep things for finishings and stuff. And that, that's a lot of time. If you want to go to finish a table just between sanding and prep for finishing, you could spend four to five hours on that. So to be able to pass that off to someone else and gain four to five hours back of my time, that's huge. Um, so that's been very, very beneficial. We also hired a part-time person uh, only about a year ago, maybe. And uh, he has been helping with the milling side. So uh, I've trained him on how to run the sawmill. And uh, we're still sort of in training on working on some of the things, but he's done an excellent job. And he's been a big help and benefit to me in that aspect as well, because milling wood is something that we would dedicate about 10 to 10 to 20 hours a week of doing and um, having him do that is amazing because then it frees me up again, even more hours to dedicate to other things such as marketing, advertising, custom CNC work, other things like that, that really I'm the only one that can do. Those are two of your employees. You have a few other ones and I want to talk about employees and the idea of hiring an employee because your first employee that you hire, yes, you're thinking of it as a real business, but maybe you're not running it as what you would think of as a real business because it's just you. You're taking time when you need, you're doing things when you need, you're you're running it how you would run a one-person business. But then when you need to expand and you need to hire people, you need to change your practices and you need to change your Mm -hmm. mindset of what that business is and changing your mindset of what the business is going to be as an employed business means you have to think about how these people are going to fit into your business. So when you're thinking about hiring people, 
and you're thinking about the type of people you need to bring on, what does that process look like? The hiring and how you go about it? Yeah, um, that's, that is not easy. And I, I know this from my own personal business, but also from professional experience. Hiring, I think any business, any company, anywhere will tell you it is not easy. Um, because you, you basically, before you hire someone, you don't get that much time. You, if, you're, if you're lucky, maybe you've known them in the past and then you're pretty much just onboarding a friend or something. But most of the time you meet someone, you talk to them, you get some basic information and then before you know it, you're paying them money. So there's a lot of trust that has to be involved with that. And for me, the biggest thing that has always been was, was the trust, um, personality more than anything. If I meet someone and I feel right away, like for some reason, I, you know, they're maybe not being honest or I can't trust them or anything like that. I don't, you could be the best furniture builder, business make runner in the world. I'm not going to hire you. Um, the most important thing to me is how I can get along with someone, how I can work with them and how they're going to represent my company. Um, because pretty much everyone who works for you represents your company in one way or another, even if it's not on the job site, if they're out in public somewhere and, oh yeah, I work for Matt over at M2 Lumber. I mean, they're representing you. So that's always been number one important thing to me uh, when considering hiring people. A lot of people nowadays find their furniture makers, find the people that they want to work with, find basically anything that they need on social media. We can't deny that social media is the advertising of our lives right now. And that's the way people find things. But if you're going to spend money, on something, if you're going to go beyond just looking at a nice piece of furniture or a video of some lumber, and you're actually going to invest some money, then you go to the person's website. And that is the door to the business. And that is what brings people in. And your website, front and center, when you come to the homepage, is your reviews from Google and Facebook showing that you are a trustworthy company and also a chat now feature with all the common questions that I'm sure you get asked all the time. So those two things right off the bat, we talked about how you don't have time to waste. Those two things get people in the door. They understand that you're a real business, a trustworthy business, and then they can start asking their questions. How important is it for you to have your website set up like that? How were you doing it when you started and what changed to how you're doing it today? Yeah, that's, that's an amazing um, point to bring up because I, I was, we, we, get, we get on average, I would say around four or 500 hits on our website each month. Uh, which isn't a ton, but for us, it's, it's pretty good. And it's been growing up uh, substantially since then. And then I would say between phone calls, I also have a, I also have a 1-800 number service that I uh, included uh, a while back as well, which is listed on our website. And that 1-800 number service also, when you reach the voice bot, or you reach a recording at a certain point, that service that tells a lot of basic features about our business as well. So basically all the ways that people can get in touch with us via email, website, chat, or Facebook and Instagram and phone call, all of those have an auto, semi-automated message response system that tells them basic information about our business to answer some of those questions. One of the most obvious ones is how do I buy lumber? Because we primarily sell wood to the public and you'll get that answer right away. Whether you call us or you see it online or something like that, it tells you how you can book an appointment for weekdays tells you our hours of operation and our location, all the basic stuff. And then anything else as far as custom furniture or custom milling requests, it also tells you how to proceed from there. That has been huge for us because, or for me, because I primarily have to answer every single one of those messages. And there was a point a couple of years ago where I would probably spend two to three hours a day just on Facebook, on the website, on Instagram, 
answering messages between that and emails and phone calls. Um, so that's that's very very important to to the the uh, efficiency of how our business can run. You said four to five hundred hits a month. Then for some people that's a lot. For some people that's not a lot. But we can all agree that the percentage of those website hits is what really matters because if you're getting 50% of those being converted into sales, then that's 250 sales a month. So the conversion is really more important than the amount of traffic you're getting or the amount of customers that are coming in the door or calling you or emailing you. You said you were spending two to three hours answering emails every single day. You cut that down to weeding people out with these commonly asked questions. But then once people go through those commonly asked questions and they want to speak with a real person, they want to get out of that automated situation. They're over there saying, speak to an operator, speak to an operator, like we all do when we, when we call automated services. What, what do the next steps look like when you have a customer? And how do you split up the different types of customers you have coming in? Yeah, so um, being able to, so to speak, weed out the, the ones that aren't going to convert to anything, that's, that's a huge benefit because, yes, it saves us a lot of time. I would say that by the time I'm either actually responding in a chat to a question that hasn't been automatically answered, or I'm taking a phone call to talk to someone, um, I would say that probably about 50% of those actually convert into actual business, whether it's selling lumber or doing CNC work or uh, custom furniture type building. So that's a pretty, pretty good number for us. And then um, the way the process works, depending on right which business we're talking about, if it's buying lumber, um, honestly, those are probably the least amount of phone calls we get nowadays or that I have to personally interact with. Because as soon as you call or you message, it tells you right away, if you want to come view some of our lumber, go directly here online and book an appointment. And so nowadays, a lot of people show up and, and I just see online that I have an appointment booked. I don't even have to talk to them until they show up here. Uh, so that's really big. The furniture side is usually a little bit different. So a lot of times people want to ask questions and they generally want to know how the process works before uh, they show up here and, and they, specifically, you know, like what we have in stock, what we have in inventory and things like that. But when I find out what somebody wants to have built and we discuss how they want it to look and make sure that it fits in our portfolio, because we're not, we're not doing, you know, plywood cabinets, we're not doing cornhole boards, stuff like that. So we make sure it's something that we want to do that we enjoy doing as well. And as long as those things match up, then generally the next step is for them to just come down to the, to the shop anyways. And um, the benefit of us being not just a furniture company uh, and also a lumber yard is that they can actually come see what wood we have in stock and available and they can pick out the wood themselves. And I have found that it's been a really big benefit um, to to just really convincing someone that they should have something custom built. It's, it's really hard for a lot of people to imagine what something is going to look like. But when you can see it firsthand and they can touch it and put their hands on it, even if even though it's not finished, it's a raw piece of wood, they get a much better idea of what they're getting into. So that's a that's a big win for us is to get someone in the shop, start showing them what wood we have available. And then once they find the piece that they just love and it speaks to them, then it's locked in and we start building for them. Let's focus on the furniture side, on the custom furniture side of your business. We know from just listening to this conversation that time for you is very much money. Time is money for you, for your business. You do not have a lot of it. You need to budget it and you need to act accordingly because that is your most finite resource that you have. When somebody comes to buy furniture from you, anybody who has a furniture company, anyone who's ever done custom furniture or sold furniture in general knows that there can be a lot of back and forth with clients. We all want to have that client that says, I want a custom piece of furniture 
you design it, send it to them. They say yes. And then the piece of furniture shows up at their house and they say, this is great. And that's it. But the reality is that those customers are few and far between, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's custom furniture and they have the right to get as involved as they want in it. But the more involved the customer gets, the more involved the client gets, the more time is spent on that piece. So how do you budget your time for consultations, for design, and for building? And how do you make sure you're getting paid appropriately for all those parts, not just for the final piece? Those are very good points. Uh, And I want to go back to one of the things that you mentioned earlier, because it kind of ties in with this when you talked about bringing employees on and how that changes your mindset and the way that you run your business. And I would say one of the biggest things that I that changed my mindset about how I run my business is when I brought on those employees, I started looking at how much each hour costs me. And before I didn't do that, I just said, okay, I've got eight hours today. Let me see if I can get something done. Now I started looking at this hour is costing me this much money. And One of the things that I started doing differently is, for example, I used to just quote projects. If someone said, I want you to build this table, I would have some idea in my mind of what I thought it would take to build and how much the wood was worth. And I'd say, okay, here's a price. And I needed for my own security to do it in a much more specific way. That may not be for everyone, but that was what I needed to do. So what I did is I sat down and I thought very critically for for one day about all the processes and all the steps that it took me to, for example, build a table and how much time, depending on the type of build it was, that it would take. And I assigned what I thought was a fair hourly rate, whether it was me doing the work or someone else getting paid by the hour so that I could have them do the work and still profit off of them as an employee. That's the idea of an employee is to make me money, not lose money. So once I figured that out, I have a retail point of sale system that I use, and it has all of the itemized process steps to build a piece of furniture in there. For example, if I'm going to build a tabletop out of two pieces of wood, I know that first I need to flatten those slabs, then I need to joint the edges, then I need to put some domino joints in there, clamp them up and glue them, then I might need to flatten it again afterwards, then I'll need to do some sanding and some prep work, and then I'll need to do some finishing. Each one of those steps takes a certain amount of time and has a dollar amount assigned to it. When I quote a table, it's line by line, just like that with a total amount. And that gives me small goals and targets in between of where I need to be to make a profit off of that table, which is important when you're paying other people to work for you. And in the beginning, it was not right. It was wrong. And I can tell you that I have increased my rates. I've adjusted how much time it takes to do it. But now after three to four years of doing it, I generally know right off the bat, if someone wants a you know, book match tabletop with a metal base, I know how much it's going to cost because I've done it so many times and I'm confident I can make a profit on it. And so that was an important mind shift in how I run my business on the furniture side of it. Talking about a mind shift and the way you actually think about it, your background, your professional background in your other job and also the beginning of this company as a lumber yard, those are both very number-oriented professions. But a lot of people who build furniture, they're in it for the creative part. They're in it to build furniture creatively. And the business is an unfortunate byproduct of loving to build furniture. But to be successful, to continue to build the pieces that you love to do, to work on that side of furniture building that you love to do, you need to have that professional side. You need to have that business side. You need to have that number side locked in or else you're just going to keep losing money and you can't run a sustainable business that way. In your mind, and I know it's hard to explain your mindset and the way you think, but Can you give a little insight into how you think about building furniture and how you think about the business part of building furniture and the number side, not just the creative side? To be honest, I I have to, I separate the two. Um, You know, in the example I gave where I I said, I I sat down to figure out how much time that it's going to take to build a table. There's nothing creative about that at all. 
I'm putting in the steps in Excel, mapping it out in my mind, assigning dollar amounts to it. That, that is completely engineering cost benefit analysis side of my mind, totally separate from, from the creative side. Um, but I just, you, you, you do have to have both. Unfortunately, I think if you're going to be semi-successful uh, in this type of industry, because no one wants to buy a boring piece of furniture. You hope that it looks cool. And, and of course, I'm not going to sit here and say that I make some of the coolest furniture ever. I don't really think that I do. I think the wood usually speaks for itself and that it's really pretty. Um, but they're, they're two separate things for me. Uh, when it comes time to be creative, usually the number side is, is turned off. Um, <laughs> when it comes time to sit down and, and do some design work, I'm just thinking about, you know, imagery what do i want this to look like how i want it to flow there's there's no sense of of how it's going to uh be uh built at all and sometimes that's a struggle because there's been plenty of times where i've had ideas that i thought were really cool looking and then my other side of my brain kicks on and goes well wait a minute how are you going to build this and usually i have to go back and revise it because you know for example wood is not homogenous it has grain structure going in usually one direction that's important when you're designing a piece of furniture. And so sometimes I'll have pieces that are, have these nice curves in it. And because of the grain flow, I can't do that. So I have to go back and change that. So I find myself usually flipping back and forth between this kind of the number side, engineering, physics side, and then this creative, flowy, artistic side of my brain. And I honestly wish that the creative, flowy, artistic side was a little stronger. I don't, I don't stress that muscle enough. I know that's something that I want to do more of but um unfortunately running a business requires so much of the of the left side between the marketing and the advertising and the like you said the accounting and everything that i don't use the right side as much as i want to <laughs> a lot of furniture makers know their competition whether it's their local competition or worldwide competition looking through different people's furniture sites and how they're building things and they know that they're out there but they might not have that connection with their competition but you running a lumber yard and a furniture company that lumber yard i have to assume a lot of your furniture competition is coming to that lumberyard and buying product from you. And so you have an intimate knowledge of their pricing because you're a part of that pricing. How do you deal with your competition when you're selling to them, but you're also probably bidding jobs against them at the same time? Yeah. You, you have asked probably the most perplexing question that I've asked myself um, since I started this, this business. And I don't know that I have a very good answer for it, um, but I can, I can share with you what I've resolved to just believing. Um, we do. We have a lot of, I mean, most everyone who buys wood from us, we have thousands of customers in the area. And um, most of them, some of them are hobbyist woodworkers just here and there, but there's a lot of them that are also trying to make a living, whether it's professionally or on weekends, uh, you know, just trying to churn some stuff out. I used to worry about that a lot when we started getting requests for orders, um, specifically because of the, the, the situation you mentioned. I would notice sometimes where someone would ask for me to quote them to build something very specific. And then a day or two later, a customer would ask for pricing on wood to build something also very specific. That sounded like it was probably the same thing. So that does happen. And what I try to do, to be honest, and this is not just me saying this so that other people will continue to buy wood from us. I try not to steal business from my customers. And, and the, the way I, the reason I word it like that is because I still consider the, the baseline of our business as a lumber company. We turn out way too much lumber there's no way I could ever build enough furniture to utilize all the lumber that we build. And we're not really a very large sawmill. We do about a hundred thousand board feet a year though. And that's, that's a lot of wood. And for me to try to build a hundred thousand board feet with a furniture a year, this is just, I just don't see that happening anytime soon. So I try to keep my customers, my customers and try not to steal from them. 
Now, that being said, if someone comes to me and they ask me to build them a table and they've come to me, I have no knowledge of anyone else doing the same thing, we're still going to do it. But I've also learned that in our area, there is such a huge demand and request for furniture. I really don't think that I could hurt anyone else's business that much by doing what we're doing because there, there is such a high demand and a need for uh, custom furniture, especially in the last couple of years because of the situation with COVID and then material shortages and issues with the ports. I mean, a lot of stuff that people used to order online had super long lead times. And so then all of a sudden having something custom built was not only just the same cost, but you could even get it quicker sometimes. Um, so there is a really big demand for it. So I don't worry about it as much as I used to, but it, it's definitely something that is on my mind from time to time. <laughs> You're not actively stealing business from your customers. And that's a very respectful and appropriate thing to do. You are the supplier and you want to have your customers succeed. So they keep coming back to you. And I get that. But you also have this furniture side of your business. And without actively stealing customers, you are actively putting yourself out there and trying to build the furniture side of your business. What does marketing for the furniture side look like for you? And how do you go about that? Because I know it's much different than marketing for the lumber side. Yeah. So you, you may not like the answer that I'm going to give you to this because it, it really plays off of what I was just talking about, about trying you know, trying to focus on our main thing, which is the lumber um, side of business and not wanting to steal from customers. Honestly, I have not tried very hard at all to purposely market and advertise um, the furniture side of our business. And by that, I mean, I don't have, I don't have very many at all paid ads out there online. We post pictures of stuff that we build on social media and then people see it and they like it. And then they reach out to us or the stuff that we build for our customers. You know, they tell their friends and their family and they see it. It's mostly been word of mouth uh, on the furniture that we build. The, the lumber side, completely different. We, we, we pay Google, Facebook, Instagram, anyone you can imagine. We, we pay for ads every week so that when someone does a Google search, we're on the top of the list. Um, but for the furniture side, we, we really haven't had to do that. It's been mostly word of mouth that people have found out about us and social media. I, I will say to follow up on that, I mean, based on my experience with marketing and advertising for the lumber side of the business with, with Google and Facebook and Instagram, I'm positive that if we were to take the same amount of money that we dump into those campaigns and do the same thing for furniture, I am positive that it would increase our uh, custom uh, order request and uh, revenue stream for that side of the business. And the main reason I haven't done it was because the situation that we're in now with the amount of orders that we get and then plus selling lumber uh, to the public, we actually are at the point to where we can barely keep up with the amount of lumber that we can kiln dry. So essentially a substantial growth on either side of our business is gonna force us to look at some heavy investment um, to be able to dry wood faster because we, we have two kilns and that's really our bottleneck in our entire process. So I'm uh, not saying that we won't do that. We, we probably will, but um, obviously I don't need to invest a lot of money to grow the business to the point to where I can't support it <laughs> with my material supply. So that's, that's kind of where we're at right now. Well, you will hit a point if you don't scale properly both sides of the business that you're going to be cannibalizing one or the other part of your business. If you, mm -hmm. if you produce too much lumber, then you're going to have to focus all the way on the lumber. And if you use all that lumber to build furniture, then you're not going to have a lumber company. I know you said that this is something you struggle with, and this is something that anybody who has two different parts of their business struggles with. People who do custom furniture, but also have a collection of furniture, people who have a furniture side of their business, but they also do renovations, people who have a furniture side of their business, but they also do small home goods. When you have multiple things going on and you don't balance them properly, you end up 
hurting one side of your business or hurting both sides of your business because you can't do all of the things successfully all the time. Do you have a plan to scale your business? And what would that look like if you did? Yeah. So we, we do, we've kind of already started down that journey and I feel bad because when I mentioned the people that worked for me earlier, um, my colleague, who's going to be pretty mad that I mentioned him this late in the, in the interview, his name is Trent Loftus. Um, I hired him about a year ago and now he lives in a town called Clemson, which if anyone follows football, they probably know where Clemson is. Uh, he's about an hour away from me. And um, I hired him last year to help with the custom furniture side because it did get to the point to where it was more than I could handle by myself. So he is doing a little bit of both, but he's doing the custom furniture side of the business as well as uh, retail sales of lumber out of his location in Clemson. So I guess we technically have two locations now. And then, um, as I mentioned earlier, I had another gentleman I hired last year to help run the sawmill. So I've, I've pulled on more help to alleviate some of that need to focus on either side, because if the shift comes to, we need to cut a lot of wood, I'm sort of the, the, the middleman that can float back and forth. If we need to cut and focus on processing lumber and wood, I can help out with the other person that I've hired over there. And there's two of us that can tag team that and, and make, make that side of the business flourish more. If there's a huge swell in custom order requests, then I have Trent and I can focus on that together. And then we can team up and knock that out. And so I'm floating back and forth between the two of them um, as needed, depending on where the business is going. And I'm trying to scale them both equally, to be honest. Obviously, if I can make money building furniture, I'd like to continue to do that. If I can make money selling wood, I'd like to do that as well. I don't want to quit either one of those. So I'm just kind of seeing where the, where the customer demand's coming from, where the economy is going, and which side of the business needs more attention and, and shifting my, myself based on that. Do you base your decisions on the actual numbers or a feeling of where the business is going? And I know that it sounds like the obvious answer should be numbers, but some people build things off of their emotions, off of their gut feeling. So I am genuinely wondering when you're thinking about scaling, is it purely based on the black and white numbers or do you have a feeling of, I think it's going to go this way? It's, yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. Both again, unfortunately, I would say that when it, so when it comes to scaling and what I should do using the logical and the reason side of my brain, of course, that always comes down to numbers. Even if I, even if I feel like this part of my business is doing well, well, that just, I go back to the numbers and I double check and I look and I go, yep. Okay. Of course it is. So that's, that's what needs to be scaled. You know, we're selling lots of wood. I can tell because our inventory is going low, we're working more hours. We have more appointments, people coming in, the revenue side of the business is going up then, okay, scaling next, I need to buy another kiln or maybe a higher production sawmill or, or something. Same thing on the furniture side, getting more requests with that. I need to hire some more help, maybe look at more machines to make our process more efficient uh, so that we can turn around faster so that we don't, you know, we can take on more orders. We don't have to turn them down, that sort of thing. Um, but as far as what I want to do, that will always be the furniture side of it. That's what got me into this. I remember I was doing woodworking before I discovered, you know, sawing with a sawmill and producing lumber. I love furniture. I love the creative side of it. I will always, always want to do that. If I didn't want to do that, I wouldn't be doing the production side. Lumber is when you're milling up a log, it's pretty. A lot of people love to zone out and watch YouTube videos of sawmills cutting wood and showing what it looks like on the inside. It's beautiful, but it, it can become very monotonous very easily because you have to talk, you have to think of producing thousands of board feet. And if you honestly stand around all day long to look at how beautiful a piece of wood is, you're not going to be making a whole lot of production and, and make a lot of money. So you unfortunately have to look at that side of the business is just make it as quick as you can get it going. Um, furniture is very opposite. We don't like to rush furniture. We like to take our time to make sure that it looks beautiful, that it's built right, that we we thought about the design correctly and the function of the piece and the flow and everything. So 
Um, it's definitely both sides, but what I want to do and my passion is definitely furniture. You said you don't rush the furniture side and I get that. And I'm sure you also don't rush the sawmill side too. You've been doing this for a while and you take an appropriate amount of time for what needs to be done. But on the flip side of that, you are very aware with your employees how much an hour costs, how much that time costs. Even if it needs to be done, it still costs you money. As a boss of these people, yes, you can be a friendly boss. You can be somebody who works with them. You can be as much hands-on as you want. But when it comes down to it, you are still the boss. You are the one signing the paychecks. How do you balance that idea of working with somebody, but also remembering that they work for you? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a very good point, Ethan. And I will say that I have probably, because of my professional career, I have spent countless, countless hours um, in trainings and personal experiences about leadership and, and being a good boss. I can't tell you how many books I own on that topic. And that's, and it's there. Some of them are really great. Um, but I've also had some really terrible bosses. So I know what it's like to be in that situation. So I've always tried to make sure that if you get someone who's going to work for you and they turn out to be a good employee, that is the most valuable thing ever. You cannot afford to lose that because good employees are hard to come by. And so being a good boss and a good leader is, is critical. So what, one of the things I've always done is, yes, sometimes people need coaching. Sometimes they need motivation. Sometimes they have bad days and they're tired. I try to be understanding of that. I, if someone comes in and they're just dragging and they're not really earning their keep for the day, I don't you know, knock around it. I walk right up to them. Hey, what's wrong? You tired? You stay up too late last night? Yeah. Okay. Why don't you go home and get some rest because you're really not helping me make any money today. And maybe tomorrow when you come back, you'll be feeling better. That's not me being mean. That's me explaining to them that we're trying to make money here and run a business and they're not pulling their weight. And I do stuff like that. I also am really careful to make sure that I'm not going to ask anyone to do something that I can't do or won't do myself. So if I'm telling someone they need to move faster, I'm going to show them what I mean by doing it first, by moving faster. And a good employee will, of course, see that and catch on and they'll just start doing it. The not as good employee, sometimes you have to tell them, hey, watch me. This is what you need to be doing right now. Or, hey, this isn't good enough quality for what we produce on our furniture. Let me show you how to do this. And, um, you know, like I said, a good employee, you only have to tell them that maybe once or twice. I have had some people where they no longer work here um, because they just weren't cutting it. And a lot of times they know it, too, to be honest with you. I haven't had to fire anyone. I just don't call them to come back <laughs> and they don't call to ask to come back because they, we both knew that it wasn't working out and they didn't need to be here. We've already talked about how you being a lumber yard, a lot of furniture makers are coming to you and you're dealing with them on a day-to-day basis. And I'm sure a lot of them are established businesses, people that have been doing this for a while, but I'm also sure that there's a lot of new people, a lot of people who this might be their first official lumber order before they start their first job. This is the beginning of a lot of people's companies. And at this point in the interview, I'm usually asking people what advice they have for people who are just starting out or people who have had furniture companies for a while. So so I'm going to ask that question, but I'm also going to ask, what are you learning from people talking with people who own their own furniture businesses every day? Yeah, absolutely. We, 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 have, we have thousands of customers and, and a lot of them are woodworkers and they're trying to start a business, whether it's just selling at craft fairs or taking custom orders out of their garage or whatever. So we do, we see a lot of the same questions and concerns over and over again. And I'm just not going to sugarcoat it. A lot of it's fear. A lot of it is fear of, am I not charging enough? 
Am I going to mess this up when I build it? How am I advertising right? Am I wasting my money the way that I'm advertising? Those types of questions. And, and I try to simplify things as much as I can. And I always see that it comes down to this fear. And I totally get that because I'm not free of fear. I'm fearful all the time in various aspects of my business, of what I'm doing, fearful that I'm not going to make the right decision or anything like that. And one of the best pieces of advice that I can give people is just, is just do it. Just don't be afraid to make a mistake because you will make a mistake. More important is to make that mistake and then have the wherewithal to understand, okay, I've made a mistake. It's not the end of the world. Let me do a post-mortem, analyze what led to that mistake. How do I prevent that from happening again? And then move on. The faster that you can make mistakes, the faster that you can learn. So if you are undercharging, you won't ever know that unless you build a bunch of furniture and undercharge. Um, if you're overcharging, you know, if you're not advertising correctly, if you build a joint incorrectly on a piece of furniture, you won't know it until you try it and it fails. Um, so the ones that I see that become successful firsthand start out with very little and then grow their business as well. They're, they're the ones that are not afraid to make those mistakes. So that I think is the simplest, most straightforward way to put it. Everybody fails. It's, it's true. That's just the nature of doing something that you've never done before. You're going to fail at it. And the sign of a good business, like you said, is how fast you can get back up, how fast you can learn from that mistake, learn from that failure and get back to building, get back to running your business because you can get knocked down. And if you don't get back up, then there goes the business. But if you get knocked down and you get back up and you learn from that, and you push forward and don't make that mistake again, then that is the road to success. Yep, absolutely. We've talked about so many different parts of your business, and I really appreciate you letting me jump around and, and take a little snapshot of all the different pieces of what you are doing. I truly appreciate your time. And I truly appreciate you sharing your knowledge about how you run your business. And I want to wish you continued success in everything you are doing. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's, it's an honor to be here to, to discuss with you. And I thank you as well for having this podcast because it doesn't matter how successful you are. It's always great to hear other people's perspectives and other stories. And so uh, you putting this on and the time and effort that you put into it is really awesome too. Well, thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere you like to listen. To learn more about the show, you can visit buildingafurniturebrand.com. And feel free to reach out anytime to say hey, ask a question, or suggest a guest for future episodes. Our email is hello at buildingafurniturebrand.com. You can follow along with me on Instagram at TheBuildWithEthan, and I can't wait to bring you the next episode. This show is produced and edited by me, Ethan Abramson. Hope you enjoyed, and thanks so much for listening. The Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson podcast is proudly part of the Woodpreneur Network, the media network and community for wood entrepreneurs. Check out woodpreneurlife.com for more information.